Welcome, everyone, to the AdDot podcast. It's Vaughn Vernon here. I'm your host, and I have today with me Danielle Lubke, and uh, he's one of the co-authors of a new book, Patterns for API Design. This is a book in my Addison Wesley signature series, and um, very happy that I have met Danielle and his uh, and his co-authors to explain just a bit. Um, the book. I'll I'll do that in a moment, but I want to welcome Danielle first to uh, the podcast. Welcome, Danielle. Yeah, hello. Um, thanks for having me on your podcast. Hello, everyone who listens to this. Just to explain a bit about the the book, um, in terms of the co-authors, there are five co-authors altogether. I guess the lead uh, co-author was Olaf Zimmermann. He's German, but lives in has been in Switzerland for quite a while now. And uh, uh, Olaf was working with IBM for, I don't know, a number of years, maybe 18 or 20 years or something. Um, uh, I apologize if I'm not exactly correct about that, just from you know my memory. But um, he's now in, in, you know, a professor in a university in Switzerland. And a number of the co-authors, three in fact total are, uh, well, four now are professors. Uh, Danielle uh, Lubke is is one of the co-authors who is working in industry. And uh, Mirko Stoker did work in industry up until very recently where he, he got a professorship as well. So there's a good blend of um, industry experience and viewpoint from academia. And I think that's pretty cool to have that that kind of blend together. So um, what did you think about having this team? Well, I think it's, it's very important to have this team, or at least it was very beneficial. So you have people running around in projects, so the industry guys who usually yeah, work and uh, have all these problems but don't have time usually to, to really go deep into things. And then you have people at universities, be it professors or PhD students, who usually have time but uh, don't see these problems uh, very much. And so this is a complementary team. Um, so we from the industry side could say, okay, these are problems we encounter, these are solutions we are seeing, so... Also helped that I mean Olaf was uh, I think at Global Services but uh, at IBM but at least in consultancy and, and I'm as well and, and Mirko also did lots of projects sometimes in parallel so we saw some organizations we saw typical solution strategies and so this is what we brought in and on the other hand Uwe and Cesare both uh, had written patterns before so they knew how these templates work, what to document, uh, where to look for, uh, which things to contribute. And in the end, this worked quite well, I must say. Good. And yes, I have to agree as a series editor, having you know the early look at your book and and even just knowing um, some of you, mo- mostly I, I knew uh, I was m- most familiar with Olaf. We had met... Um, uh, just amazing shortly before the pandemic um, lockdown uh, about a little more than three months before and we kept in touch and had some you know conversations along the way and uh, I was very 
interested in and impressed by the work he was doing at the university in open source software, along with his assistant and and uh, developer there. So it all came together as um, as a great opportunity to work together. So we're, I'm glad that that happened. So let's kind of get into this discussion about your book. There are already many pattern collections, uh, books on patterns. I mean, I don't know, what was it, 19... 19- 92, 93, maybe, that um, Design Patterns book, the Gang of Four Patterns book came out. I don't remember for sure, but maybe it was around that time. And since then, there have been a number of Patterns books. And a lot of those are considered classics. Uh, the the POSA books, POSA 1 through, I don't know, is it 5 now? <laughs> Something like that. And and uh, even if you go back to PLOP, the um, pattern languages of Programs, I think it is the name of that group. There were even books um, published out of those um, sort of, I guess, not not conferences, but kind of like patterns workshops that where they would get together and work on patterns together far back. What makes this such a a good, you know, sort of unique patterns book? Why why write it? <laughs> yeah, I think there are two parts to this answer. Um, so one is, as you noted, there are many pattern's books out there which are deemed classic. So it's not that pattern's you write in just three years, they're superseded by some, some different technology. So pattern's capture experience, and they capture this usually in a technology-neutral way. Yeah, so if you look at Gang of Four, I think it's one of the most well, successful books, although no one buys it anymore, but everyone knows what an iterator or listener is. It's so, so, well, frequently used in our language and even our programming languages that, well, it's definitely a success. And also, if you look at enterprise integration patterns, we have all these things which we use in our day-to-day language. So I think that's the first thing patterns are really there to, to stay if they are well done. And then the question is, what do these patterns contribute in addition to all the other patterns books? And I think we, we found well, a niche, well, what means found? <laughs> it's going back again to, to our project experience. When, when Olaf approached me, it was actually quite good timing. So the story is we were raised, um, well, only some kilometers apart, but we met in a workshop back in Hanover in 2007. And then for many years, we didn't meet until we both were in Zurich, in Switzerland. And then in, I think it was 2016, he approached me and asked, okay, I have this idea for pattern language for APIs. And at that time, I was in a project which was very large scale and where we had new API designers. Back then, it was service designer. Um, so also terminology technology has changed a bit. And I was really frustrated by explaining many things over and over again. And this was some of my motivation to to tackle this project. So answering those things which weren't documented already, and these were part of, well, more the API payload. I think in contrast to, to other pattern languages, which are more concerned with architectural roles, or I mean, we also have design choices, but more out of message design choices. We're really having patterns which going to the structure, what you put in into your requests and responses. And no one has done this before. 
although we frequently do this, and I think if you if you look at the pattern catalog, there are things you will definitely notice, like pagination. That's something which we all do once and over again. Um, but no one really has put this into pattern form. So what are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? What variants do you have? And I think that's one of the great strengths of this book, that we have closed this gap between the architectural things and then really going down to the technical books where you discuss how HTTP works. Yeah, and I, I think, too, that patterns have been getting kind of bashed over the past, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe two years. I've seen a lot of negative comments about patterns. We don't need patterns. And this isn't just coming from the um, sort of functional programming world, which may or may not be accurate, but um, actually coming from, <clears throat> you know, the, the typical object-oriented, uh, not even that those projects are object-oriented, but using object-oriented languages. And what I found is that a lot of this bashing comes from kids who are being paid a lot of money by Fang and <laughs> other companies. And I, and I think they sort of feel like, hey, we just know everything. And my prediction is that they're going to um, come out of this reinventing patterns, whether they call them patterns or or not, you know, they're they're going to say, "Oh, I've seen this before," and uh, and I and oh, this must be maybe the second or third time I've used this, and let me write it down so that other people can <laughs> can learn from it and use it later, and then all of a sudden, you know, we've got like this two ages of of patterns or something like that, and. I just don't think it's fair, and there's a lot of wisdom in our industry, you know, um, people who have been writing patterns for, for you know, I mean, ages, I guess, in, in internet terms, you know, it's probably been like six, seven generations of, of pattern writing, so to speak, right? And, and uh, <clears throat> so I think it's quite important and a great statement to come back to this, you know, and, and say, nah, patterns still matter, right? I, I think it's I think it's quite important. Yeah, well, I mean, we see this, what you described with patterns, we also already saw this like in, in the 2000s where the Gang of Four book was bashed and still is on YouTube, actually. I was quite astonished that there's a quite new video uh, of someone who was telling that's all not necessary and we don't need this and I think the first misunderstanding these people make is that you must use these patterns so it's no competition to use as many patterns as you as you can but it's to to find the correct pattern the correct design concept to your problem and so that's why this this pattern format is quite nice so you see what are the influencing forces? What do I get and what do I make worse as well? So it's not, no decision just as, as positive. And patterns capture this, as, this quite well, I think. And the other aspect, I think you're quite, quite right on that, is in general, we, we, we are reinventing many things. So I'm, I hope that I'm not that old, but, but still, when I was at university myself, uh, Corba saved the world, and then XML, and consequently, SOAP saved the world, and then REST saved the world. And I don't know what's now going to be the savior, but at all these 
breaks between technologies, many things were just discarded by people who said, okay, it's, well, we don't need this. Um, it's too complex and it's too difficult. And then while these technologies evolve, you, you add on the same things again because the problems are still there. And yeah, then perhaps you just look into your pattern catalog like, like, I mean, also enterprise integration patterns, I think it's the same. So it was a book, when it was released, it was quite famous. And then for a while, it was nothing. And then moving back things into the cloud, all these concepts are reappearing. And also the interest in these patterns are reappearing as well. For sure. Um, So overall, what would you say was the motivation for uh, documenting these patterns. I mean, what, you know, maybe you, you know, you noted your own experience and there was Olaf, but sort of if you combined everybody's um, thoughts about this, what was the kind of overarching motive? I think it was really collecting experience and putting it out there in an accessible way. I think that's the common denominator. So, with slight differences, like I said, I had some some project experience back in that day. Uh, Olaf was was looking probably at his teaching. Um, we had these pattern guys, which so Uwe and Cesar, which who both were interested in doing these things. And Mirko, I don't know what his personal uh, motivation was, but I think it was along these lines because we, when we worked in a team, it was really putting the reader first and making sure that. You, as someone who's designing an API, know what decisions you have to make and what you get for these decisions or possible solutions. I think that was really the overall thing. So documenting some something, putting it in a nice package, and then getting it out to be used. Yeah, and if you were to talk about the time involved in, in doing this, you know, a lot of people want to write a book, as I say, in uh, preface to strategic monoliths and microservices, I think that the that um, the number of people who actually write books after they say they want to write books is probably about the same as the number of people who say they want to dive with great white sharks and actually do dive with <laughs> great white sharks, right? So, um, what you know, what does it look like to write a book like this, especially with five co-authors that? That must be sort of like the the partnership, uh, you know, from <laughs> from a, a uh, messy place or something. Sometimes. Yeah, well, the interesting thing is that we never, uh, possibly to to hard as a statement, but we the first goal was never to write a book. So we are, we have now written a book without wanting to write a book. So we, we started by collecting these patterns, and this goes back to 2016, so it's six years ago, quite a while, where we had the first sketches of what things we want to document. And then, and that worked quite well, was we were publishing, or going to these Europlop conferences, as you mentioned, which are really great workshops. And we put each pattern category there every year, so a new one every year. So in 2017, the first pattern structure and then quality, evolution, responsibility patterns. And this was good because you had some externally defined defined milestones. So you had the workshop deadlines. Um, 
year new who was interested in these categories or who would contribute more in this year. And at these pattern workshops, you really got feedback from many, many people. Um, and that was really, really good. And then we said, okay, we have now published this on our website. We have these Europlot papers. Uh, now we have enough to, to really build a book, which seemed to be the next logical step. And we thought it's just writing this up because we are content complete. So we started the book from a content complete milestone. Um, but still, it took us two years. So really getting consistency into the things which evolved over many years, um, making figures consistent, adding texts. We haven't completely, some chapters are completely new, like decision models um, and also industry case descriptions. And I mean, we are not full-time authors. Uh, I think that's it's also important. So all five who were involved in this really have their day-to-day -day jobs, uh, except Olaf, I think, took some time off in between just to, to concentrate on this book. But for all others, it was a kind of a hobby. And so naturally, this, this took a bit longer. Um, but on the other hand, I think if you don't rush these things, you're getting quite a high level of quality out of it. So really, the, these pattern workshops were really great on improving our patterns, having the website up and getting there also feedback from, from industry people who just emailed us and said, well, <laughs> that's great. Um, I would love to have this before, <laughs> some years ago. And, um, and this was motivating and this helped us to refine things. Yeah, and then yeah, all in all, it has been six years. And I think, but also their team is good to, to keep you there. I think if you write a book alone, it's, it's easier to just say, you know, it's not important uh, for me now, I cancel the project. But if you're on a team, someone is motivated <laughs> and someone will push the others until they're motivated again and have time again. Yeah, yeah very true. Um, yeah, I have found that having a co-author is, um, well, it just introduces better solutions in some way and, and more complexity in other ways. It's, it's a trade-off, right? Like almost everything we do in software is, is a trade-off, like even becoming a software developer in the first place. <laughs> but I, I do know, I do know what you mean when you know, like I have been introduced before as an author and I really dislike that because um, almost no technical authors can afford to be authors only by, and you would not be a successful author if you were just an author, right? Like how, how can you expect to not be a software developer or a very good software developer and write a successful book? So yeah, we, we all have jobs and uh, sometimes we get opportunities to spend time other than, you know, in addition to our jobs that, that you know, opens up to us. But I can tell you that I'm the, the follow-up book that, that uh, Tomas and I are working on now, we're just barely, you know, like millimeter by millimeter getting work done because it's we're so busy on other things and it's just it's a real challenge 
and yet you want to help. You want to keep helping. And but please, um, if you if you think you want to write a book, and you're listening to this, just understand, it would be a grand exception if you were able to actually retire on your book earnings or, you know, like think that you didn't ever have to work in industry again. It just, that's very unlikely to happen. No, and I think it shouldn't also be the goal, right? So I think, like you said, so you need to be a developer, at least have some kind of technical role uh, and you need to work on the contents in the sense in the sense you really need to have hands-on experience because otherwise it's just a theoretical book and yeah, well it will have no meaningful content uh, in a sense and so yeah you should know what you're writing about and this means you're a part-time author at best and then you should do this just to improve the craft and I think also computer science, although it's quite a large field, it's still a niche, so it's not like we are writing Harry Potter. So we will, will definitely sell fewer books uh, with our topics. Yeah, for sure. And I, yeah, yeah, we're not we're not writing these uh, uh, fictional blockbuster type type books for sure. And um, now, I, I did think it was quite interesting that that the book started as basically a website, right? Like the, it, it wasn't a book. The motivation was let's <clears throat> provide like this open source guidance <clears throat> for people. It was kind of my fault that it became a book. I mean, maybe you would have as a team later said, Hey, could we find a publisher for this, for a book? But um, in, in staying in touch with Olaf since the, the pandemic lockdown, we eventually got around to talking about this, you know, website and the project. And right away, I think I had maybe just become, I just had received the offer from um, Addison Wesley to have a signature series. And so, you know, with these two kinds of knowledge in mind, I was like, Olaf, uh, why would you not be interested in turning this into a book? And he was like, I, I think I've never thought of that before. So, you know, it's quite interesting how that how that came about. And I'm happy that we did. So first, you know, like maybe a next question along that line is, um, do you really need a team? And if you have a team, how do you collaborate together um, to, to actually make it work? You've touched on that a bit, but I think it's a good segue. Yeah, well, I, I don't know whether you really need a team. So all book projects have been author or editor. I've did with other people. So not five, but at least two. I think if you're disciplined and experienced enough, you can write a book yourself. Um, but I, probably if there's someone just thinking about writing his or her first book, I would probably say just get some partner, one partner at least, and and keep you motivated. And then collaboration, yeah, I mean, it's like, like in software development. <laughs> there are more parallels in writing a book. Then. Um, and one is definitely version control. <laughs> and what we did is, which is probably completely, well, strange setup, um, is we used Markdown actually to write our texts. And from this Markdown, we had different generators. So 
all these um, papers for these plot conferences. We generated the LaTeX and then the, the PDFs from Markdown. Uh, also, the homepage we did from the same source. And then for the book, we branched the patterns and um, had some generators who would uh, generate the, uh, the Pearson uh, word template for us. Um, and that has some advantages. So we used Git and you get all these nice diffs and you can see who changed what. And, and that's really nice. Or what you don't get is, well, it's uh, what you see is what you get feeling. <laughs> so you need to recompile things. You need to push your changes and then see what, how the homepage looks. Um, but overall, if you have five people working on different things, having more or smaller files, especially, so so even if we would have used Word, it would have been a bad idea to just use one large file. You naturally, would split this at least into chapters. Um, and we had this on a pattern basis. So we had one file for each pattern. We had then obviously other files for, for the non-pattern chapters. And that worked quite well. So you have comments in the source code where you could just annotate things where I could say, okay, DL uh, as my shorthand. And I write some comments, some questions. Um, and like I said, you, you have a plain text format. You can use all the different version control tools like you would have on Java code or whatever code you like to use. And that was quite nice, although it's a very technical setup. So I'm, I'm sure that's not for everyone. So there are people definitely who would uh, prefer to use some more comfortable tools which are geared towards text processing. But that's how we did it. And... In the end, um, it's not perfect, but it was nice, especially that we had these generators for having these different targets and we didn't need to reformat things and do all this crazy stuff. And for um, the generation of the website, we're using something like Hugo or one of those um, um, static generators. I must admit that Mirko did this. Um, uh, I think it was Jekyll for the website. Mm -hmm. from Similar Martin. tool. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, cool. So, how do you write a pattern or codify a pattern? What, you know, some people might say, how do you create a pattern, right? What, what does that <laughs> entail? Yeah, well, the, the interesting thing is you don't create a pattern. <laughs> well, you, it's called mining, although. I think it's a strange term, but what you do is you look for things which you encounter really in practice. So usually the rule of thumb is you need to find a solution three times before you may call it a pattern. And then there are different templates, but more or less they contain a name, which is supposedly the most important element. Then you have forces, which this pattern addresses, and and you have benefits, drawbacks, a solution sketch, usually an example. And that's what you then fill with what you see and the solutions you find in, in real life. And, I mean, they're nice discussions. So I think everyone learned quite a lot by formalizing these patterns. So, like I said, pagination is something which everyone uses, but, but still when we wrote and commented and reviewed this pattern, everyone, I think, was more knowledgeable later than he was before. And probably the most discussions you have with the names, because, I mean, in the end, the goal is that people 
use this name as a synonym for this whole solution. And that what the Gang of Four really did well. So we were using these names uh, without thinking much about that. And they very clearly describe um, what the solution is. And so we had many discussions. Um, and the problem there is that sometimes some patents really have different names by different communities. And um, so we settled for one, which we found the best. We also put there a list of, of synonyms, what we found on other names and other people used. Um, but yeah, in the end, it's, it's really working through this template, um, looking for what does this pattern improve, or what will be negative impacts, what's a good example, um, yeah, and then change the name again to make it better. <laughs> so I think for some patents, we really changed the name three or four times. So really until we said, okay, it's really describing what what it means. Yeah, some I've heard that naming is hard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've heard that before. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and that's that's why we call these pattern languages, right? I mean, it is. I mean, okay, it's only a pattern language if the patterns form a language, right? In other words, they belong together. They they um, they complement one another and so forth. And but you are creating a language around. The pattern and it becomes recognizable for um, anyone who is is using the pattern. So then, um, yeah, let's talk about that for a moment. How do you actually use patterns in a project? How do you know that you need to apply some pattern or any number of them? Well, in the end, you, I don't think someone really searches for or shouldn't should search for how many patterns go in there. So you will identify problems which you have and these problems should be addressed somehow. And then there are some people who just will do anything and then there will be people who draw from their experience and then there will be people who draw from others' experience and patterns are captured experience from, from many people. So what you look for is, well your problem and what do you want to improve from a quality side? Do you want to improve scalability? Do you want to improve some kind of performance metrics? Do you want to improve understandability of things or maintainability, evolvability? And what are you going to sacrifice for that? Um, and if you then know patterns, um, you probably have some idea which pattern will address your constellation and your context properly. Um, but in the end, I think, and that's at least which is interesting for me to see. I mean, I know obviously all these patterns in our book, so. Uh, but still, I I have a very short list of these patterns, or the the overview graphic of our from our homepage, and then when I when I design an API, I just check off things. So I just cross them through. If I say it's not applicable, or put a question mark. If I say, okay, I, I don't know whether this is something I'm going to use, or I just put a check mark on, on things where I, th where I think it's, it's going to help. And this kind of a checklist is, is interesting also for experienced people. So we, uh, like say you get a get a pull request and you need to review some API description and then it helps to have something which guides you and these patterns can really serve as a checklist or these forces, these quality, quality attributes. Has the author of this API 
thought about well, the result set size. Can this be huge and should, be, should something be done about that? So should we truncate it, paginate it? Um, should we make it configurable like GraphQL or something like that? And so this really helps because we have so many dimensions on, on quality attributes that you're likely, if, if you don't do the structuredly, you're likely to miss, miss somewhere. So for me, it's really went into kind of, of checklist thing. So I take an overview um, and just really use that as a checklist. Yeah. And, you know, you, you touched on something there that, that I recall recently someone posted some advice and and discussed um, these are my favorite patterns to use and I just thought what <laughs> you know like what? so it's a goal to use these patterns in in anything I I would say that if there's any pattern whatsoever that that um, you know just like throw something out there that is um, kind of a go-to pattern is probably like ports and adapters architecture, maybe, right? Like probably in a lot of line of business uh, projects, you know, products, I think that ports and adapters make sense. And then if you're using domain-driven design, you know, there are a few there, but I don't enter a project saying it is my goal or the, I'm going to use my favorite patterns here because they're my favorite patterns it's there is no goal like that right it's just what do you need and yeah and, exactly. re and recognizing the need yeah yeah but i think this problem goes goes further so people just presetting frameworks programming languages deployment technologies whatsoever because they are somehow used to that and they just never ask themselves, is that a good idea in this new project or in this new context? And they just say, okay, that's how I did it the last 10 years or five years or whatever, and I will just continue without thinking about that. And the goal is never to use as many patterns as you can. It's using the correct ones for your context. And it might be even zero, which is totally fine. So I don't need to sell this book by by counting how many instances of a pattern are in any project worldwide. It's to the contrary, it's if people make conscious choices and our description of these patterns help them make these choices really consciously and structuredly, then that's really an advancement. And not just I know every pattern and I need to, to show off and introduce everything so that my teammates are, are jealous and no, it's, it's really picking the right tool for the job. And I think in programming, we are quite bad at that in, generally, in general because we, we have some fashions, some hypes, and then everyone is doing this newest technology. Like I said, every five or ten years, a new technology saves the world. And, and no, it doesn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> These days, it's every six months, I think, or something like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay, so I think I counted just, you know, going very quickly through the table of contents. Are there about 45 patterns in your yep. book? Something like that, yeah. Yep. And um, so, yeah, I mean, can you imagine that we have to use all 45 patterns to say that we're getting value out of 
purchasing the book or do, you know, like, I, I don't know how economy of scale or something. Um, well, did Christopher Alexander use every pattern that he wrote about in every building, you know, that he created an architecture for? No, of course not. And, you know, so. No, and you can't actually, because some patterns, like if you look at the evolution category, so there are things which you can choose one, but not all. So you can do two in production or you can do experimental previews, um, but you can't do both. <laughs> um, or likely, on at least on one API, you can't do both. And that's the same with other patterns. So you know, and that's I think you talked about a pattern language and how patterns are connected. And I think in a good pattern language, you have alternatives which gives you for the same problem under different circumstances, give you different solutions. And if we take the example, I have too much data, which I return. So between GraphQL and pagination, there are many different options. And you're likely to choose one and not try to stack all on top of each other just to, to make things more complex. Um, but you need to know which route to go and um, which exit, so to say, to take, which pattern to take. And, I mean, people ask me, do I need to read all of this? I mean, it's quite quite a large book, nearly 500 pages. And no, I don't think you need to read it at the first time and to end cover to cover. But you should, in your mind, you should have a, like, a, like a hash table of what patterns are there and what, what problems are addressed. And if you have this and then you're on a project and see, okay, I now have this problem and I, I might not even know the pattern name, but I know that there was a pattern in this book. Then I'll find this pattern um, and then I can use it. Yes. And in your book, I think you call, you just mentioned it, um, is it related patterns, right? So maybe this is what you would use um, if there was some trade-off that you would prefer not to have the downside of that particular trade-off, then consider these other patterns, which could help either, you know, overcome the negative part of the trade-off, or maybe it's an alternative that you would use instead. Would that be, a, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and also, I mean, that's one of the things which aren't on the website, but which a chapter in the book, which is, a whole chapter on decision-making, which gives you decision trees for these problems. So you can see, okay, I have this problem, and there are these three or four patterns which might address this. And all will, like you said, will strengthen certain things and will weaken certain things in my solution. And that's why you can't say I always go with pagination. Oh, that's my favorite pattern. I, I use pagination all the time. Sometimes I don't need it because I know it's only going to be 10 records being returned. And sometimes it might be the wrong wrong solution because my client has, has other needs than fetching pages and pages and pages again. And I think that's one of the advantages the book has over the homepage is this chapter, which really guides you by these decision trees and some some explanations for this, um, how these patterns really relate to one another. One of the things that um, I noted from the past is that Ward's wiki, um, Ward Cunningham's wiki, C2 
Com has uh, maybe you would call it a meta pattern or something. It's called the rule of three, and this is where it, it at least used to be stated that um, there should be three uses of this pattern in industry before you would be able to write it as a pattern, right? Like to to codify the pattern because otherwise maybe it's not really a pattern. Now I've heard that there's kind of a a change in that, um, you know, that pattern authors don't necessarily go by that anymore, but it's interesting that there used to be this rule of three. Um, can you speak to how, was that a decision factor for you? Like, okay, we've seen this enough times to know it's definitely a pattern or how did you like that kind of decision-making on the pattern? Yeah, well, I, both directions. So we included patterns where we found, and usually we found much more than three instances of that. I mean, we have now so many APIs, both in organizations where we worked and also publicly. So you find many of these things. Um, but also from the book, we excluded one pattern because we actually could just only find one instance of that being used. And then we said, okay, that's probably not relevant, uh, neither for the reader nor for us to, to spend our time really doing all the formal work on, uh, on documenting that. But I think this this rule is, is important. And I know that some pattern authors are trying to work around that. Um, but still, you're, you're not a pattern creator. You're, you're trying to just gather other people's experience. And if there are not at least three people telling you, at least by some software artifacts, that this that they thought that's a good idea, then, well, you're back to creating patterns. And the main benefit of a pattern is that it's really codified experience. And if you don't have this rule of three, you lose that. And that's why I think it's, it's good to still adhere to that rule. And, and like I said, like I said, we really throw out one pattern, which we have and still have on our homepage, but it's not in the book because we just couldn't find more than one instance of that being used. Yeah, good. And uh, just, you know, so the audience knows as well, um, when I first started talking to Olaf about this, and I think even the first proposal that he turned in to Addison Wesley, which I looked at, and there was a lot of sort of, domain-driven design, DDD support planned for the book. And I know that he, that you as co-authors have referenced DDD in, in several cases, but I remember telling Olaf, look, this doesn't have to be a DDD book. You know, I'm, ho I'm hoping that most of the books in my series act, you know, they, they're going to support DDD in some way, but um, they don't have to be DDD. And I think that's why your book is only 500 pages. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, just, well, I mean, you know, 500 pages, it, it's considered a big book these days, but my red book was more than 600. And I think uh, Eric's blue book is right around 600, maybe, you know, somewhere up there. And, and so, that's a big subject in itself. I'm not saying that you're Olaf or any of you were planning on talking about DDD from the ground up or, you know, every single detail of it, but I, I'm happy that you noted where there's overlap um, or at least uses within DDD and how maybe certain patterns were influenced by 
uh, domain-driven design types of decisions, mo model decisions, and so forth. But it it uh, clearly is not a DDD book. It's a it's an API patterns book, which is great to my mind. Yeah, definitely. And uh, also, I think if you look at the first draft, it was had much more side topics, and I think it's good that we stripped this down. Also, I think one factor was to align this with other books in your series um, and really, well, abstracted more, isolated more. So if for whatever reason DTT shouldn't be that hyped anymore, then still these patterns would stand. But still we have all these references and to DTT and also to other methodologies and to other books and other patterns just to say, okay, that's that's a landscape. So you're right here now, you're designing your API, you're designing your API payloads. But usually you're also, in, well, obviously in the project context and perhaps you're doing DDD and then you can look there because there you find the description for things which relate at this point or to this pattern. And the same for microservices. So when we started, microservices were just new and well hyped again. And the initial name was microservice API patterns. And still, we didn't notice because at the time with all this hype, it was natural to call it that way, but it was a bad name because these patterns by itself are very agnostic of the architecture. Every architecture today has some kind of API and especially distributed architectures have many, many APIs. And we now see microservices are being reshaped or people say, okay, we are now moving back to monolith monolithic systems, but still they will have APIs. So why should we entangle our patterns with, with microservices? We don't need to. We give pointers. So if you have microservices, then we give you pointers um, where you can read and, and see how these pattern re patterns relate to microservices content, uh, concepts. But um, I think really, if you look at the book now on the table of contents compared to this first proposal, that it's sharpened and that the context is much clearer and that we like refactor out code, we, we refactored out contents and just replaced it by references to, to books, which would cover this in much more detail and could, could do this. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, there are very good TDD books out there, as you might know, and why should we write chapters over chapters repeating those things? Yeah, and, and I'm very happy that you wrote a very sound, you know, wise gu guidance for uh, API design patterns that, that is really needed. And so what's the feedback so far? I mean, you, you told me, or I think I saw it somewhere that you actually hit number one on Amazon. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. That's pretty um, good feedback. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the feedback overall has been amazing. It has been been unreal. So, I mean, if if you look at at least how I feel, so so we worked really a long time, like six years, and at the beginning it was new, and you thought it was new, and then after six years you get so accustomed to it that you say, yeah, it's 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 good content, but you know it inside out. It's not special anymore. For you at this moment, so after six years, it's not special. Um, you're happy that the book is done, that the publisher has it, and uh, you get your copies, and you're proud, and that's nice. But then something happened, and this 
has not happened to any of my other books before. So people on LinkedIn just put this out, like Gregor Hooper or Eric Wilder. So people really have a huge network of followers and they praised this book. And then all these people just liked it. And then came available on, on Amazon a bit later. And then we hit for the um, news books um, or book releases, we had number one in, in, in computer programming. And that's unreal to a certain extent. So, But, it, but it's, it's great because it really shows you it was worth working so many years on this book and that people now say yeah that's great and, and even big names are coming or mailing to you yeah that's that's a gap and it's now great that i can refer people my project to this book and to this catalog and so so far it has been a great experience after this release so it was very very well received in a way i couldn't have imagined before yeah i i act, i know what you mean i've i've hit that number one before and yeah, not just one book in it. And uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing, actually. You just, you wonder if anyone at all is going to like this book or ever read it. And it and it hits number one and you're just, uh, you sort of don't know what to say other than, wow, my book just, <laughs> you know, uh, hit, hit the bestseller, you know, number one on bestsellers. So yeah, it's a, it's a great feeling and it makes all the um, hard work seem worthwhile you know i i would say it does definitely yeah. yeah definitely and you know six years nearly i don't know was it exactly not quite six maybe but pretty close to six years that's a long time to work on yep. any project a software project anything right and yeah so yeah and then the release is just before christmas so <laughs> it's a great gift yeah <laughs> great christmas present that seems to be a uh, a popular thing to do. So um, now this is going to be an odd question, I think, because we've already talked <laughs> in the negative about this question, but what is your favorite pattern? Now, I, I, I'm not saying that like, what is your favorite pattern that you use all the time and you always use it? Maybe, maybe it's like, well, which one do you think was the most interesting to codify or, you know, the, maybe overall the most useful or the the most complex one to deal with or something like that. Anything like that? Yeah, I think there are two <clears throat> which are interesting from this perspective. Um, one is definitely pagination because if you just go out and tell, tell any programmer, yeah, well, we need to do pagination or you look or Google it, then you will find these blocks Well, how to do pagination and that's simply inserting some parameters into your Hibernate or whatever object relational mapper you're using. And then you look at this a bit more in detail and you see, okay, that's only one of the variants which you have and there are two others and these two others are usually performing much faster from a performance perspective if you get this to your database. And that's something which I somehow knew, um, but never actually gotten deep into it. And having these three variants in one pattern was, was very challenging because you really needed to make sure that the reader understood is this applicable to all variants or is this something which only applies to one. <clears throat> and in between, we really thought about splitting this into three because it was so 
so complex also cohesion was was a problem <laughs> to to remain in, to use uh, software engineering terms um and very interestingly for me well I think it was half a year later when we finished this this pattern more or less the pagination pattern I was at a client project and they really had this problem of performance and pagination by using the simple hibernate approach and it was quite handy to say yeah well I I have something up my sleeve uh, there are other variants I'll just show, quickly prototype this for you and you can see how these others perform and they actually then switched over to to a more ID-based uh, pagination approach. Um, so in that sense, this was definitely one of the more challenging patterns to write because of sheer the well, amount of, of information variants which are in there. Although it seems to be like everyone knows this and I think most people just know the general idea and one variant. So I think also for readers who are not really experts in pagination, you will find something really useful and new in, in this pattern. Um, and the second one is different. Um, it's a context representation. Um, so you're transmitting some metadata of your request, like message IDs, correlation tokens, and you yeah, you bundle this into a special section, like, like in payload header, so to say. And that's something which I thought is, well, common practice. So... Um, I mean, I was my, the beginning of my career was at Swiss banks, uh, insurances, and internally they did this. So it was part of their infrastructure. They used this for logging, for auditing, um, and still, when I when I did the first presentations about our pattern project, it was people, hey, that's a great pattern. I didn't know this, and we have all these problems because we have message IDs, but in every API, it's, it's called differently. <laughs> and so that was for me, well, interesting, so to say, because the pattern itself is easy, writing it was easy, but from the initial feedback, it had quite an impact on, on people realizing what they are doing, and it was yeah, amazing somehow. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. I I would have to say that if someone, again, is just doing the go-to Hibernate or JPA or uh, Entity Framework, you know, I know how to do pagination, I can pretty much guarantee, well, I won't say guarantee, but that's probably one of the least performant ways to to go about doing that. And yeah, so um, hopefully people are learning that Although there is a lot of OR mapping out there, OR mapping is, well, it's just not the necessarily even the easiest way to go about it these days with the kinds of databases that we have features and databases. You can, you can get a lot of mileage that um, OR mapping, you know, kind of covers without using OR mapping, but ah, leave that to the, to the, to the <laughs> implementer, right? The designers. Well, it's probably its own podcast in itself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I should do. I, I, in fact, I can think of someone right now um, uh, who probably I should interview about that, and I think he would disagree with me a lot, but that's okay. <laughs> um, I mean, it makes interesting yeah. discussions, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. so, okay, after all this is said and done, what have you learned um, from 
codifying these patterns, you know, writing all this documentation that's ended up in, in book form. And I, and I just have to say, you are permitted to say that I, one thing I learned is that I'll never write another book, but I would hope that you would say, no, 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 I, I now feel uh, uh, sort of, you know, more bold about writing another book, but I would choose to write a 200-page book in your series rather than a 500-page book or some, you know, but what else have you learned? <laughs> well, I think, well, the most prominent thing is I really learned about the contents myself. It's It's like always, if you write something down, if you try to adhere to a template to formalize things, you realize what you don't know and then you read about this or think about it and you are getting better at it. And like I said, the, my my trigger for, for doing this project was that I wanted to teach other people who were in my project and where I had to explain things. And, and I realized, well, okay, perhaps in some areas... Um, it's good that you wrote the book because you're now much better instructor. Um, and that's something which is natural if you think about that. I mean, this effect we all know. So writing things down makes you think about it and leads to better solutions. But still, it surprised me by, by what degree this happened in this book. Um, so that's, I think, my number one takeaway. Um, Concerning whether I would write another book, um, yes, I was actually asked by, by people whether I would write a book with them on, on other topics, more um, workflow automation. And I said, well, I, I answer that after Christmas. <laughs> At least I need some, some weeks to, well, to, uh, to, to not writing a book and, and recover a bit and get myself sorted. Um, but in the end, no, I, I would definitely write a book again. Um, whether it would be 500 pages or 200, I don't know. It probably depends on the topic. Um, but I would never agree to, to finish this in a year. So I would always start with the idea and, and write a rough manuscript. And then I know, okay, um, I'm now ready to, to go and present this to some external person. Um, because I, what I learned also is um, I'm bad at estimating things with book projects. <laughs> so I would rather not estimate any release date or handing over to a publisher. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's not easy. And, and most future authors, I'll say it, put it that way, most future authors have missed their deadlines from the beginning, right? And I, uh, even during you know, in, in writing Strategic Monoliths and Microservices, um, that that book came about shortly into the, the lockdown. And uh, Tomas and I, and especially it's my fault, you know, we, I thought that we could write two books within the lockdown because I thought the lockdown would, and I mean like the intense part of lockdown, right? Where nobody was doing anything, no, everything was frozen which ended up being about six to seven months. But then after six months, things started getting busy again. And wow, talk about, you know, it just became more challenging. And then after nine months, when we actually had, had completed the first um, manuscript, you know, not nine months in, I would say, is what I'm talking about. It, it just became way busier than we ever thought. So just 
you know, like you said, you have to temper your enthusiasm for what you want to write about with the realities that, you know, you still have to um, please clients and, and they may be interested in you writing a book, but only after it's done. <laughs> They're not interested in you writing a book right now, right? They just want you to get their work done. So, yeah. But that would be cool. Yeah. More more topics um, that you have experience with, and that would be great. So look forward to that. Do you have any sort of parting advice for readers or maybe how to contact you or what, you know, how you might help others on their projects? Yeah, well, like I said, so if you have the book just and you don't have much time, just try to get to know each pageant. You don't need to read it from cover to cover and really try to use it as a checklist when you design your next API or you review your next API. And while well, we have our homepage, um, which also referenced in the book, and so you can use that as well. And there also our contact data is there. And hopefully next year we will also um, have our trainings on these pageants available. So if you like a more formal training, then you're also welcome to, to contact us. But in the end, it's just um, use it and not use it in, in the sense and the more pageants, the better, but in the sense use the pageants which help you and no others. <laughs> so that would be my advice. Yeah. Actually, for any pattern. Yeah, you still have to use your brain, right? So yeah. brains are still really good, really good. Uh, <laughs> so, well, thank you so much, Danielle. And, and I look forward to getting together with you again. I look forward to having a podcast interview with Olaf soon, hopefully. I don't know. I think we have that one scheduled, hopefully. We'll, we'll keep in touch and look forward to your future work. Yeah, thanks for having me, and I'm also looking forward to what you do in the future. <laughs> if you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe and stay tuned for more. This podcast is sponsored and produced by Kalele, makers of Domo Roboto and the Zoom platform. To learn more, visit kalele.io. That's K-A-L-E-L-E dot I-O. Thanks for listening.